The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So I invite you to open up, if you have a Bible, to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Those of you who haven't been with us, or maybe you're visiting, so you know, we are going through the book of 1 Corinthians in the New Testament, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had started, uh, that he actually planted, he went into this very pagan, worldly capital city called Corinth, close to Athens, Greece, 2,000 years ago. And people started responding to the simple gospel message and getting saved. And he stayed there for a year and a half. And over the year and a half period, he was able to uh, oversee a little church there and teach those saints. And then God called him to plant churches elsewhere and to check in on other churches that he planted. So he did leave Corinth. For a while and had been away for three years from this church that he started and they were a fledgling church and immature in a lot of ways and struggling with different issues and after about three years Paul got word that the church at Corinth that he started was having some severe problems mostly with uh, division among the members in the church and it needed his authoritative attention to address it and try to rectify it there in that city of Corinth at the church. So Paul writes, in our English Bible, it's 16 chapters. When Paul wrote it, it wasn't 16 chapters. He didn't write chapters, numbers. He didn't write, okay, verse 1. He just wrote on some kind of a scroll one long sentence. And that scroll must have been from that piano to the end of the stage. And whether it was on animal skin or a scroll or plant, dried plants or whatever, we don't know. But He didn't divide it up into chapters. That came many years later. So it was just one continuous, long letter written to these saints. And so, but for our benefit, we've got to divide it up in chapters. So we're going to be in chapter 2 today. We looked at the introduction. We looked at the main problem. The problem was division in the church at Corinth. Uh, Paul needs to address this. Christians should not be fighting. I'll say that again. Christians should not be fighting, squabbling, arguing, being divisive. That is sinful. That grieves God, that grieves Jesus Christ, that grieves the Holy Spirit that lives in you. Uh, That messes up your testimony for the world that's looking at you. Those who aren't Christians, they look at Christians squabbling and fighting and they think, oh, Christians can't even get along. Why do I want to be a part of Christianity? Jesus said, they will know me by your love for one another. So this is priority number one. Paul wants to address this issue. Actually, in chapters one through three, Paul is dealing with the division in the church. So it's one long argument. We dealt with chapter 1. We spent a lot of time there, 31 verses, laying the foundation, which will help us in chapter 2 and 3. But he's going to go on for chapter 2 and chapter 3 of addressing this issue of trying to correct their behavior of being divisive people. And at the heart of the issue was they had, some of them had a pride problem. Pride is always at the issue or the, the, the root of division among people. And I said this last week, also to correct the problem, Paul had to address their thinking first and foremost. And that's what this is. This is addressing the thinking and the wrong thinking of Christians. So we're going to look at chapter 2 today, verses 1 through 9. So let's go ahead and follow along as I read. As Paul continues in his argument of why these Corinthians shouldn't be at each other's throats, why they shouldn't have cliques, why they shouldn't have illegitimate loyalties to certain groups, in the church and chapter 2 verse 1 he starts a new argument of why this should not be so 
starting at verse 1. Paul reminds them, And when I came to you, brethren, so when I came the first time, Acts chapter 18, when I came into the city and preached the gospel for the very first time. That's what he's talking. So he's reminding them of something that happened almost five years previous. Do you remember when I came to you the first time? And when I came to you, brethren, and uh, we'll get to that word brethren and why it's important. I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor the rulers of this age who are passing away, but we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of, of glory. Just as it is written, Isaiah 64, Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So now I just want to break down what Paul's talking about and make it real practical for us. The title of the sermon I put is Paul's Gospel Ministry because that's really what he's reminding them of, the nature of his ministry. He's going to talk about himself a little bit, but not in a way that he's trying to boast. He's not trying to lift himself up. As a matter of fact, he's trying to, in some ways, deflate uh, how they have illegitimately elevated him to a status that shouldn't be attributed to him as a sinful man. For some of the folks, because some of the folks in Corinth, going back to chapter one, uh, the heart of the problem, some there was a clique of group who said, verse twelve, "I am of Paul." So there was the Paul contingent in Corinth, and for whatever reason, they had this loyalty and allegiance to the apostle Paul, which actually was illegitimate. Paul is not happy about this clique that runs around with placards with his name and maybe his picture. He finds it embarrassing and shameful, actually. Because they're giving glory to Him, and the only glory should be given to Jesus Christ and to God. So, But he has to talk about himself because he has to put his role and his ministry in a proper perspective so that they can change their thinking and stop being cliquish and divisive and swarming around a personality cult. It's not about sinful humans. It's only about God, Christ, and His glory. So, the title, Paul's Gospel Ministry. So he's going to remind them of the nature of his ministry. And I came up with three points there. Notice, did you notice that I actually read nine verses? And that on your sermon outline it says, theoretically, I'm going to actually preach on nine verses today. I don't know if you can believe that, but uh, I believe in miracles. God does miracles. And I broke it down into three points there. Um, so we'll look at those three points. They'll have to do with the main points and the nature of Paul's ministry as a preacher which is a great reminder for us today and a need for us today because there's a lot of confusion about what a preacher or pastor is called to do. There's a lot of confusion in the world about that. A lot of the confusion comes from just television and radio because you can see all kinds of, all matter of speakers and so-called pastors and spiritual preachers and they run the gamut and from 
good and biblical ones to outright pseudo-false preachers that are heretical and false teachers. And if you're undiscerning and you're not a believer and you're not a Christian, you don't know the Bible, you just assume that, well, they're all the same. Billy Graham is the same as this one, is the same as this one, is the same as this one. Well, that is not true. You know, so this is good for us to see what is the nature of a true preaching ministry, a true pastoral ministry, what are its priorities, how does it manifest itself. We need this for us in this day and age with our proliferation of speakers and pastors and healers and teachers and prophets and gurus and on and on it goes. So let's go ahead and look at Paul's gospel ministry as he gives this sobering reminder to the Corinthians to correct their thinking that they might take Paul off the pedestal and put him down where he belongs on the ground as he walks with feet of clay and then resurrect Jesus to his proper preeminence in their thinking. That's the Paul group. But Paul is also addressing these three other groups in the church who elevated Peter in an illegitimate manner and elevated Apollos in an illegitimate manner. And even that, I think, uh, super spiritual elitist group called We Are of Christ. We are the Jesus people. We're the original Jesus movement. Because uh, there was that faction. An an, I think an arrogant, elitist faction in the church. And so this argument that Paul brings is going to poke hole, holes in all four of those groups and bring them back to their senses. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, three points there regarding Paul's ministry. The first one, number one, is Paul's method. The method of Paul's ministry. This is his methodology. How did he do ministry? Well, it's simple. Preaching versus rhetoric. Preaching versus rhetoric. No, rhetoric is not spelled incorrectly. R-H. Some of you probably don't even know what that means. You'd have a hard time defining it. Some of you actually were trained in rhetoric. If you went to, if you had classical training from the time you were in third grade and Latin education and the model of classical training incorporated rhetoric is foundational. So some of you actually might know what rhetoric is. I remember when I was in college, I was a new Christian. I had hardly been a Christian for a year and I was being discipled, mentored by some other Christian college guys. And I was always listening in on their conversations. I didn't know anything. I just... I got saved, I love Jesus, and now I can see. Amen. But I didn't really know the Bible that much. I just remember one time, two of my buddies, they were talking, and the debate of discussion was about whether Paul was a master of rhetoric or not. And they're going on, oh, yes, he was, and rhetoric this and rhetoric that. I didn't even know what rhetoric was. I couldn't spell it correctly. I didn't know it was R-H. Um, and I'm listening in, and I'm like, wow, rhetoric? What is that? And that, I never saw that word in the Bible, and... And they're just talking about how eloquent he was and how he was trained, uh, especially by uh, Gamaliel and privileged elitist training, what a great speaker he was and how profound and blah, 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 blah. That was like over 20 years ago. I still remember that conversation because I found it to be quite intriguing and I didn't know what they were talking about. Really? Did I miss something? Is Paul really a master of rhetoric? Huh. Well, that's answered right here. My two buddies, they were dead wrong. Uh, Paul was not a master of rhetoric. And this is where the Corinthians got confused. Remember that the Corinthians lived in Greece. The Greek culture, whose forefathers were the inventors of rhetoric. That's a kind of speech, kind of writing, but more so a kind of oratory and speech that emphasized eloquence and precision and outward delivery. And it had specific rules and how you made your delivery and pauses and emphatic statements and 
other rules of logic that had to be followed precisely to be a master of rhetoric. And so this was invented and matured and fine-tuned by the Greeks for hundreds of years. 400, 300 B.C. So in the days of Paul in the first century, this, this tradition had been around for hundreds of years. Very precise, very specific. It was all about eloquence. So Paul knows that this was the culture in which these Corinthian believers were raised and brainwashed in and even trained in and trained to look for and appreciate. And so Paul comes in and he says, I'm not about rhetoric, all this Greek stuff. Even Oh, and then also, they were Corinth was in Greece, the Greek culture, but Greece was in the Roman Empire. And then the Romans had developed their own schools of rhetoric as well. So it was kind of a double whammy. Cicero, very well known. These rhetoricians from history, Aristotle and Plato, and, and then the Roman ones as well. So Corinth, that's what... It was all about. That was where true knowledge was, was if you could find a guru or a poet or a philosopher that was a master of rhetoric, then you would become his follower. And so that's Paul's competition. And so he just has to start there and says, man, I need to remind you of something. When I came in here and I preached among you, I wasn't about rhetoric. It was about something else. Let's go ahead and look at that. Um, He was about preaching, not about rhetoric. And when I came to you, Brethren, so he's reminding them. And he calls them brethren. This is significant. He's done this a few times already in chapter 1. What he's doing, he's calling himself an equal with them. This is important. Hey, you guys that are calling me, you're you're of the school of Paul and you're elevating me and you think I'm made of marble and I belong on a pedestal. No, I am your fellow brother. I am a pathetic sinner saved by grace just like you. We are equals. We are peers. Yeah, I am an apostle. That's just a gift. But it's all of God. When it comes to the human level, I'm just a brother just like you. Brothers and sisters in Christ. There's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We are all one in Christ Jesus. That's why that is so important. I'm trying to bring them down to earth and bring Paul down to earth. It's amazing what Christians or people think about pastors sometimes. These false Ideas and conceptions of a pastor. Oh, you're a holy man. You must never sin. Your family life must be perfect. Huh? Huh? And they don't know that their pastor has the same struggles that they do. That's how some people think. Some know that, but some don't know that. And so Paul's saying, hey, just like one of you. Then he goes on the the method of his ministry. So let's look at it. When I came to you, brethren, brothers and sisters, uh, I did not come to you with superiority of speech or of wisdom. I did not come to you with superiority of speech. That's the word there is logos. That was a Greek word that referred to rhetoric, the way the Greeks used it. I didn't come with this high-powered, elitist rhetoric in my speech in the trained schools of oratory from your philosophers, following all of their rules of logic and human wisdom and philosophy. That wasn't my modus operandi. That isn't how I came. And neither did I come with a superiority of wisdom. Sophia is the word for wisdom. And he said, that's philosophy. I didn't come as a philosopher and a human philosopher and logic chopping arguments trying to make my case and persuade using human wisdom and the natural revelation and the cosmological argument and the teleological argument and the ontological argument and the blah, 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 blah that some of these philosophers used. That is not what I did. 
Rather, and he goes on uh, proclaiming to you the testimony of God or the secret of God. So I didn't come with superiority of speech or wisdom. So in other words, all he's saying is, I did not come as a master of rhetoric. I did not come to impress you. I did not come to persuade you in a superficial manner for a temporary cause. Do you think that about me? You are totally wrong about me. And my calling as an apostle in the role of a Christian. Because that little faction of, I am of Paul, that's what they thought about Paul. Oh, he's the greatest rhetorician of all. But then there was the 75% who were not in the Paul group. Uh, if you got your Bible, look at 2 Corinthians 10. Here's what the other 75% or the other three factions thought of Paul. This is the the vessel that God used to bring them eternal truth of the gospel that they might get saved. He was their pastor for a year and a half, serving, serving them nonstop as a loving shepherd. Then he leaves out of sight, out of mind. They actually started to forget about Paul and what he did and all his service and all the blessings, the way he was used of God and the power of his simple gospel. And then they forgot a little bit about him, and then their thinking got a little more tweaked. And then it just spun out of control to the point where they didn't appreciate or even like Paul anymore. As a matter of fact, then they began to come up with very negative assessments of what he was like actually in their presence. This is called historical revisionism. We all do it. Almost five years later. They were so warped and distorted with historical revisionism and how they thought of their former pastor that it climaxed and eventually gets to this point in 2 Corinthians 10. This is years later. Paul is still dealing with problems in the Corinthian church because they just did not get fixed. So in his second epistle, years later, their view of Paul had just plummeted and degenerated into the gutter. To the point where there are people in the Corinthian church saying this about Paul. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 10. For some say, some of you professing Christians in the Corinthian church say this about me, the Apostle Paul. Get this. His letters are weighty. Paul likes to write that up, those epistles from a distance. He's tough. Kind of like people who send those long emails, you know. They're tough behind the keyboard where they're protected in their bunker of their basement in their pajamas. That's what they're saying about Paul. His letters, oh yeah, he's tough from a distance. His letters are weighty and strong. He uses powerful words like in Galatians 3.1 when he said, you foolish Galatians! Wow, that is powerful, that's strong. Anathema, he says in chapter 1, verse 6 and 9. So they're familiar with these letters from Paul. Yeah, he's waiting strong. But the reality is, here's the Corinthians, but his personal presence is unimpressive. And they're talking about when he had, not only when he was a pastor there for a year and a half, but when he had come back and visited a couple of times. They're saying he was pathetic. He was not impressive at all. He was unimpressive and his speech was contemptible. Can you believe that? He was not refined. He was not educated. He was not educated, obviously, in our schools of rhetoric. He was second rate. He was third rate. He was pathetic. Wow. Kind of sad to look at 2 Corinthians knowing that what he's saying here in chapter 2 didn't really fix the problem. It's just going to get worse. It's a good reminder for us as Christians. When you've got a problem, sometimes you know what? It's just going to get worse. You've got to be a realist. 
not going to get better right now. It's going to get worse. And then God will faithfully take you through and then there's a light at the end of the tunnel. He'll work all things together for good. So going back to chapter 2, just this horrible view they had of Paul. Uh, They didn't appreciate him as a gift from God and they didn't appreciate his ministry. They didn't appreciate the power of preaching. They were impressed by the superficial, by the superiority of speech and the superiority of wisdom that the Greek philosophers had. Uh, And then he says, well, here's what he specialized in in verse 2. For I determined to know, man, don't you remember? For I determined to know nothing. I I was focused. I had one priority. It was clear. It was down to earth. It was plain and simple. It it was considered foolishness by the world. Well, what was it? For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That's a summary of the gospel ministry. That's all Paul did. He didn't specialize in baptizing people. He didn't run soup kitchens. He wasn't a social worker. He wasn't called to do that. He was a preacher of the simple gospel. And that's all he did. And he was focused on that. That was the priority of his ministry. That was his job description. And that should be the job description of every preacher and proclaimer of God's truth. Staying laser focused. I remember early on in my ministry, first sermon I ever preached was almost 24 years ago. I remember it was a Christmas message. And early on in my preaching ministry, I remember about five or six years into it, a Christian came up and talked to me. And they accused me of being simplistic and they didn't say single-minded, but that's what they meant because they told me that all you ever talk about is Jesus. All you ever preach about is Jesus. And I thought, I was not offended at all. On the inside, I was like, praise the Lord, amen. And I hope they say that in 25 years. I do not want to get derailed and go off course. And that's what Paul's saying here. His message didn't change. I I determined to know nothing. I had one priority, to make Jesus Christ known to sinners. In verse 3, he starts talking again, contrasting who he was as a person and the vessel that he was that God used versus these staunch philosophers and masters of rhetoric who were apparently made of marble Paul said, man, I was not made of marble. As a matter of fact, me as a person, I was pretty pathetic as he reflects. Verse 3, he admits he was. He didn't have this daunting presence. Verse 3 says, what was Paul like? What did he look like? Have you ever seen a picture of Paul? Because you go on Google and put in the Apostle Paul, and there's like 50 different pictures of Paul. Different heights, different... The point is nobody knows what he looks like. We do not know what Paul looked like. There are some hints in the epistles that kind of tell us what he looked like a little bit, some characteristics about him. And here's one of them, verse 3. What did Paul look like or how did he carry himself? Well, when he came to the church at Corinth, he said, I was with you in weakness. Asthenia, as, asthma. is where we get our English word, asthma. When I came to you, I admit, for the first time when I was preaching for a year and a half, I came in weakness. Now that can be... Mental weakness, psychological weakness, or literally physical health weakness. Or it could be an attitude of weakness that he he recognizes that he is a sinner saved by the grace of God and he is humbled and incredibly feeling weak and inadequate by this amazing message he has been entrusted to share with others. That sounds like the Apostle Paul. But I would say it's a combination of both. We know he was physically weak. He says that in Galatians and a couple other places. Second Corinthians, he says he was physically weak. We know from Acts 16, he just got beat to a bloody pulp in Philippi 
and was thrown in a prison and released and shortly thereafter ended up with cuts and bruises and wounds in Corinth. So he probably did come to Corinth as a bloody mess. Physically weak. And at the same time, knowing the humility of the Apostle Paul and his inadequacy that he felt, he, he felt weak and incompetent. I am a vessel. Not only am I just a vessel, I am a cracked vessel entrusted with this amazing supernatural message. The only solution to life's problems in the world. So Paul admits, he's a humble man. I was weak. I was not impressive. Uh, I was with you in weakness. And get this, in fear and in much trembling. Those two words go together a few times in Scripture. Ephesians chapter 6, Philippians chapter 2. Fear and trembling, fear and trembling, fear and trembling. Also used in the Old Testament. It it speaks really, it's a religious phrase speaking of reverence and awe before a holy God. In Ephesians chapter 6, fear and trembling refers to an obedient godly slave. So it's a synonym for obedience. Shown through this outward expression of awe they have again before a holy God as a minister entrusted with this amazing Gospel message. Those words there, fear is phobia. Fabo, phobia, fear. That's where we get the word fear. And in much trembling, trauma, trauma, trauma. I had asthma, I had phobia, I had trauma. When I came to you, those are the three Greek words. So no wonder they would say in 2 Corinthians 10, he was not impressive. Church history says that Paul was a short dude too. Short guy, not intimidating. Galatians refers to this disease he had of the eyes. That's kind of gross. So he wasn't a pleasant person to look at either. So he's really a despicable creature. And he owns up to it and he admits, but it doesn't matter, it's about the message. It's not about me, it's not about my delivery. Uh, verse 4 says, and my message... So he goes back to that. And my message and my preaching... See, even the word for preaching, my message, literally, my words, the preaching of the cross, the words of the cross, and my preaching, kerugma, keruso, there's all these synonyms for preaching, this proclamation. It wasn't what the uh, the masters of rhetoric did in terms of their delivery. Preaching was totally different, a dynamic of how you communicated and delivered. Preaching is one thing that's unique about preaching. It is to be authoritative. Not because of the messenger, but because of the message. That's why as a sinner up here, I can stand here and preach an authoritative message from Scripture if it is coming from Scripture because the authority is derived from Scripture, not from me. And I can command the saints reading from Scripture, husbands, love your wife, while at the same time knowing, oops, I don't always... Do that because the message from the Scripture is where the, the authority lies, not in the preacher. So Paul's saying my message, even though I was weak and pathetic, verse 3, my message is what had all the power. That is the difference. The content of the message, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom. There is another very specific phrase referring to Greek and Roman rhetoric. Persuasive words of wisdom. In, literally enticing words. Words to woo people over on a very superficial level. As a master of rhetoric, I didn't do that. 
And also, I wasn't self-serving as a preacher. I didn't use persuasive, enticing words of wisdom. I wasn't self-serving. I wasn't trying to tickle people's ears and give them what they want and tell them what they want to hear. I was just the opposite. I need to read from second. I'll just read it. Listen carefully. Second Timothy four. Paul was given a message. He didn't deviate from the message. It was not his message. He could preach it authoritatively. He wasn't going to speak to get followers for himself. He wasn't going to speak to elevate himself. He was not trying to get the glory. And he wasn't going to say things just to make people happy or to keep them satisfied or to keep the visitors coming and flowing into the church. We need more people. We need to water down the message. We need to compromise the message. Paul wasn't going to do that. Jesus didn't either. None of the apostles did. And a pastor is not supposed to do that either. And Paul warns us through the Spirit of God that pastors will be tempted to do that. Second Timothy 4, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom. Preach the Word. Preach the Bible. Preach Scripture. Preach God's thoughts, not man's thoughts. Proclaim. Preach. Not rhetoric. Preach the word. Well, what do you mean? How do I do it? Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort. Those are strong words. Well, pastor, those hurt people's feelings sometimes. I know. And when I read my Bible, my feelings get hurt sometimes. The Holy Spirit steps on my toes. And ooh, I needed that. Ooh, I feel convicted. Yikes. Where can I run? It's what the word of God does. It's living and active. The power is in the word. Preach the Word. Preach the Word. Teach it. And as you do, you're going to get to those passages that are reproving passages. And then you'll get to those passages that are rebuking passages. And then those that are exhortation passages and also encouraging passages too. Rather timely. So there's a beautiful balance in the menu that God wants us to feed on from His Word. Do it with great patience and instruction. Why great patience? Because the preacher knows it takes time for people to change. It takes time for people to learn, including myself. It takes time. That's why you can't be a preacher or a pastor of a church for two years. Oh, I give up. These people will never change. No, do what uh, Alistair Begg just did. 30 years at the same church. They're starting to change. After 30 years. Wow, God is right. His word is true. Patience and instruction for the time. Here it is. This is what I was getting to. For the time will come. Actually, the time is now. We are here. The time has arrived. The time will come when they... Who's they? Church goers... Professing Christians sitting in pews. Not all of them, some of them. But a dominant number of them. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Healthy, biblical teaching. Oh, that exegesis baloney stuff. Pastor, it's so heady, so irrelevant, it's so impractical. Give me the practical stuff. Give me, give me, give me. I don't want doctrine. I don't want interpretation. I don't want to know what the Bible says. I just want to know what the Bible wants me to do. So they're not going to endure sound doctrine. What do you mean they're not going to endure it? They're going to get up and leave and go to another church until they find it kind of like a pinball. You ever seen a pinball machine? Ding, ding, ding. That ball's going all over the place. That's what some so-called Christians are like. But here's what's motivating them. But wanting to have their ears tickled. Ooh, little feather in the ear. Ooh, that feels good. Ooh, oh yeah, that, you're itching the right spot. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate or gather to themselves teachers, get this, in accordance to their own desires. Give me a teacher who is going to say what I want to hear and make me happy. That's what it's saying. We are there. 
This is now. Verse 4. This is sad. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. I don't want to hear the Bible truth. I don't want to hear the Bible anymore. Oh, I've had it with the Bible. Pat it up to here. Turn their ears away from the truth and get this, we'll turn aside to myths. Human wisdom, pseudoscience, that's what's happening. So this is in keeping with what Paul said. I, I don't do that. I don't come in here with persuasive words of wisdom trying to impress anybody. It's simpler than that. Um, so going back to Second, First Corinthians chapter 2, verse 4, my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom like the rhetoric people do, but rather in demonstration, get this, of the Spirit, of the Spirit of God. Spirit-driven, bathed in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God uses one thing mainly, and that is the truth of His Word. That's what the Spirit uses. He uses the truth of His Word. So it's the Word and the Spirit together, and that's how God changes people. That's how God penetrates the mind and the soul. It is through the Word of God and through the Holy Spirit. That's what Paul is saying. The only I was weak, but the Spirit in me was powerful. Just because he says he's weak doesn't mean everything about him was weak. His ministry, Paul's ministry was the most powerful ministry in the history of the church, save Jesus himself. And the power that was in it had nothing to do with any of his human abilities. It had to do with the Spirit of God who lived in Paul and guided Paul and the message or the content of his message in the Word. That's why he says, uh, any power that you did see was a demonstration or revealing of the Holy Spirit who lived in him and of power. What is the power? The miracles that Paul did? No, singular dunamis power the power that was resident in the truth of the word of god he says that explicitly in first thessalonians chapter one and two the word of god in itself has supernatural eternal life changing convicting and altering power it's in the holy spirit and the word of god and both of those have nothing to do with paul great reminder for me as a preacher if there's any power in my ministry whatsoever it's not even my ministry it's all God's doing. Every mistake can be attributed to me. Every great thing that happened should be attributed to God and His glory. Verse 5, so that... Oh, okay, we'll, we'll stop there. That's point number one. Just a quick summary now on this rhetoric thing where Paul just says, uh, I'm a preacher of truth, not a master of rhetoric. And so here are the main differences between preaching and rhetoric. Just a, couple of, a few contrasts I wrote down. Preaching was about substance. Rhetoric was about style. Preaching is about content. Rhetoric is about delivery. Bells and whistles. Preaching is about the message. Rhetoric is about the method. The Greeks had a very specific method that needed to be followed. Logos, pathos, ethos, and in that order. Uh, preaching was plain talk. Just newspaper language. Conventional language. Not highfalutin. People actually understood most of the vocabulary from a preacher, if he's a good preacher. Clear, just talking to people, just like Jesus did. So preaching, plain talk, uh, rhetoric was all about eloquence, eloquent oratory, philosophical pizzazz, flowery verbal orna ornamentation. Uh, preaching, get this, was invented by God. Rhetoric was invented by man. Who was the first preacher? Uh, I think it was Abel. And then the New Testament also says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. And then all the Old Testament prophets were preachers. They preached the word. And Jesus came preaching and teaching, Mark 1, 14. 
And all the apostles were preachers first and foremost. So look at the span of history. From Abel or even Noah, 2500 B.C., down to Jesus. Oh, all the Old Testament prophets, Jesus himself and the apostles. And what he calls pastors to do, to be preaching. What about in the future? What about at the end times? What about at the end of the age? Maybe God wants to use technology and videos to communicate his message to the world. Not. Because you go to the book of Revelation, the two witnesses that God raises up at the end of the age, they are called preachers. God invented preaching. Humans invented rhetoric. Preaching is about propagation. Rhetoric is about innovation. Boy, when you connect innovation with church or the ministry, that is not a good thing. He is the most innovative pastor in the world. I get nervous when I hear that. Innovation is about creating something new. Propagation is simply about passing the baton and changing nothing. I'm going to put this message is not mine. I got it as a steward. I'm going to hopefully pass this baby on unscathed. So preaching is about propagation, not innovation. Rhetoric's about innovation. Uh, preaching is about, get this, confronting the mind. First and foremost, confronting the mind, how we think. Rhetoric was about moving the emotions. Huge difference. Preaching was principled. Preaching should be principled. It is based on unchanging, unaltering convictions rooted in eternal truth. So preaching is principled. Rhetoric was pragmatic. If you don't know what that means, uh, look it up in a dictionary later. Uh, Preaching is life-changing. Rhetoric, temporary, fading relevance. I got to say, I became a Christian through somebody's preaching. Some, Some dude who befriended me on a basketball court. A little bit here, a little seed there, a little bit here, a little bit there. You want to become a Christian? No. Then he gave me a little bit more and a little bit more and a little message there and a little message here and a little prayer there. And then eventually I got saved. It was through preaching. Uh, Preaching is from the Bible. Scripture. That's it. Rhetoric is from man-made sources. Uh, Preaching is from the mind of God. Preaching comes from content from the mind of God, God's thoughts. Preaching is about God's thoughts. Rhetoric is about man's thoughts. Fallen, finite humans. Uh, Preaching is a spiritual endeavor and rhetoric is a human endeavor and human persuasion. Preaching seeks to bring about conviction. And rhetoric seems seeks to bring about immediate and temporary persuasion. So the modern day rhetorician today would be a motivational speaker. That's one on a popular level. So you got very well known ones. Uh, we're very effective in persuading people and encouraging people on a superficial level. Tony Robbins, I think of Deepak Chopra, Joel Olstein, Wayne Dyer, Zig Ziglar. These are the top motivational speakers in our day. Uh, Joyce Meyer. Joyce Meyer is first and foremost, she's a motivational speaker. She's not a Bible teacher, but a, a very effective motivational speaker and a good communicator. So there it is. Paul says, I'm about preaching, not about rhetoric. And so then he goes on to point number two, and that's in verse five. And he gets to his purpose clause, and that's what, what was Paul's motive in the ministry and his method and why he preached and did it in weakness and stayed focused on one message? Well, he had a motive. It was a divine motive, and it was a motive God charged him with, a motive that God laid on his heart. 
and preserved and protected it for him that he wouldn't go astray. What was your motive, Paul? Well, it wasn't like those who were in the rhetoric who wanted to gain an audience and a following for themselves. They were self-serving and self-seeking. I am of the Plato Club. I am of the whatever. Paul didn't want any of that. His motive was all about God's glory. And so Paul's motive was God-centered and not man-centered. That's verse 5. So that... This is how I do my ministry. This is the message of my ministry. In order that, for the purpose of that your faith, Christian, that your ongoing belief in Jesus Christ, that your ongoing faith the rest of your life as a Christian would not rest on the foundation of the wisdom of man, which is superficial and passing, but rather that your faith would rest on and stand on the foundation of the power of God. What a great motive. It's pretty simple. Hey, Christian, I want your power, I want your faith to be on the foundation of true power, not sand. Do you want real power in your life? I do. Do you want real power? Because only real power can bring about real change. And it's pretty simple. And to some of you, they may sound like platitudes. Oh, I've heard this before. But it is true, nonetheless. True power that brings about real change is only found in just a few sources. One is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 1. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation. Jeremiah asked, can an Ethiopian changed the color of his skin. What was an Ethiopian? He was a black man. Can a black person change their skin? No, not really. You can't change your DNA. Can a white person change the color of the skin? No, you can't change the DNA. You can't change the chromosomes. That's how God made you. And then he says, can the leopard change his spots? No. You can't change the DNA that God gave him when you were born. And then Jeremiah goes on to say, and neither can a sinner change his heart. Only God can. Only God's true power can. Only God's saving gospel message can change a person's heart on the inside. That's where true change comes from. It comes from God and His sources. So true, true power comes from the gospel. True power also comes from the Word of God from Scripture. Do you, want, do you need true power in your life to help you with your problems, to comfort you, to bring about real change, to give you hope in this world? There's only one source of true power that will do that. Everything else is superficial comes from God, and one of the sources God gives us to have true power is in scriptural, biblical truth. So uh, many of you are familiar with Hebrews chapter 4, just a wonderful reminder of the power of the Word of God, of Scripture. Uh, the author of Hebrews says this about Scripture, the Bible, biblical truth. For the Word of God, get this, is living. It is dynamic. It is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It is piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit. In other words, biblical truth, when it is spoken, penetrates the ears, it goes into the brain, it goes into the mind, it goes into the conscience, deeper than anything can penetrate into the recesses of a human soul. Biblical truth will do that. Everything else, superficial, can't penetrate that deep. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow, and able to judge, get this, the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that's why I am not discouraged when I share biblical truth with somebody, whether it's a Christian who is being rebellious and hard-hearted, and that happens, by the way. They don't want to listen to the Bible. So if I'm sharing the Bible with a disobedient, hardened Christian, or if I'm sharing just basic gospel truth with an unbeliever, and they're just dismissive, and then they're on their way, you don't need to get discouraged as a Christian thinking, oh, that didn't do any good. Well, yeah, it did. You spoke the Word of God. The Holy Spirit invisibly took that Word of God, 
brought it into their ears, into their mind, into their conscience. And even though they're walking away, it's like invisible electricity. It is with them. It is haunting them. It is following them. It is doing its work continually and forevermore as long as they have breath in this life. God is doing His work through His Word on their conscience, on their soul. That's why anytime you wield the Word of God, it's powerful. You're not looking for superficial, immediate human results. That, that is no gauge. And that's what this is talking about in Hebrews chapter 4. The Word of God is living and active. It is doing its work when it is taught, when it is shared, when it is preached. And the last source of prayer for us, I mean, the last source of power for us would be prayer. And I just think of James 5, that wonderful passage where it says that if you're a Christian and you pray righteously in accordance with the will of God, your prayers are going to be effective, energy, energetic is the Greek word, and strong, mighty power. That's James chapter 5. You want power in your life? You need power in your life for real change? Go to the Gospel, go to the Word of God, go to prayer. It's really that simple. God will do His work. And so Paul's saying, I want your faith to rest and reside and grow and stand on the truth of the Word of God and the wisdom of God and no no superficial counterfeits whatsoever. This human wisdom that you're being lulled by. So that's Paul's method, preaching and rhetoric. Paul's motive, God-centered, not man-centered. And finally, he goes on 6-9 through talking about his message. What is the content of his message? Well, Paul's message was simply divine revelation and not human wisdom. Look at verse 6. Yet we do speak wisdom. So he's saying, we don't speak the wisdom of the world, but there is a wisdom that I do speak when I preach. It's the wisest wisdom of all. It's the only true wisdom because it's wisdom that comes from God. Yet we as the apostles and preachers and Christians, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. Who are the mature? Telos is the word. The perfect ones, the mature ones. That, That is a synonym for Christians in this verse. That's kind of neat. If you're a Christian, you are considered a mature one. You have been perfected by virtue of your salvation. You have a new mind. You have a new capacity to understand spiritual truth in a way uh, that you didn't before you got saved. You have the Spirit of God in you with the ministry of illumination helping you understand spiritual truth. And from one point of view, God considers you telos. You are perfect. You are mature in your understanding of the gospel and spiritual things. And that's a contrast to those who aren't Christians. Christians are not mature in their thinking. They are infantile and foolish in their thinking. Unbelievers don't know the truth. They think they do. That's the irony. The unbelievers in the world think they have a corner on the truth and they think Christians are idiotic buffoons. God's point of view, reality is, no, Christians are the mature ones in their understanding. They have supernatural knowledge and it's the world that is immature, infantile and foolish and darkened in their thinking. So that's why he says, yet we do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. Or no, we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, among Christians. A wisdom, however, it's not of this age. It's not of the rulers of this world. It's not understood by the movers and shakers of this world who are passing away, who are fading away, who are on their way to destruction eternally. But we speak Christian truth. What is that? God's wisdom. It's God's wisdom and it's in a mystery. Key word in verse 7. What's a mystery? Paul uses the word mystery about 13 times. He uses it the same way every time. All it is, it's divine revelation. It is truth revealed by God. That's what a mystery is. Spiritual truth revealed by God. And almost all of it happened in the New Testament times. A lot of it through the Apostle Paul. That's what a mystery is. It's not something that you can't figure out. It is something that God has revealed. And a mystery in the Bible is something that God reveals, not something that a human discovers. Oh, I discovered this mystery. That's not how he's using this word. 
So the wisdom that I came and gave to you was information the world didn't have. It's information the world couldn't invent. It was information that God gave me. He revealed it to me. God made it up. He's the author of it. I preached it to you. You didn't know about it before I told you about it. You didn't know about this Jesus man. You didn't know about this God man named Jesus, God in the flesh. You didn't know the reality of your sin that when you die, you go to hell because no human has ever been to hell. The reality of hell had to be revealed to you. And that's what God revealed that mystery about the reality of hell. That the only solution was that this God man, this Jesus this creator of the universe had to come down, live a sinless life because he was the God man and he had to die on a cross and get crucified and punished for your sin that would condemn you to hell. No human made that up. No human could have discovered that through empiricism or through intuition that had to be revealed by God. It was a mystery. It was covered until God revealed it. That's what he's talking about. So these supernatural, divine, heavenly revealed truths that we know as Christianity, Christian doctrine and the gospel are the mystery that Paul is talking about. So that's what he says. I didn't come with human wisdom. I came with the mystery from God that I revealed to you. It is the hidden wisdom. Who is it hidden from? It is hidden from unbelievers. And it will be hidden as long as they don't believe or exercise faith. And it is hidden from many un uh, unbelievers because they are blinded by Satan. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. So it's hidden. They just can't see it. So the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. This gospel message uh, is not plan B. God planned it in eternity past. Before He created the world, before the first person was created, God authored the plan of salvation through the person of Jesus Christ. It was prepared in eternity past and it culminates in eternity future because He says at the, the end of verse 8, so the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, at the end of verse 7, God predestined before the ages to our glory, to our glory. God made this whole plan of salvation so that the, cl the climax and the culmination might be our glory someday. Our glory, your glory, is in the future. When you have a resurrection body, when you have no more sin living in you, when you live in perfection with God for all eternity and all the saints, that's glory in that day is coming, and that's God's plan for us. Maybe you know somebody recently who has died. We at our house, we heard of someone who died this week, a brother in the Lord. Actually, a couple people that, that died this week, actually. Um, one for sure was a believer. And so those who know him are taking comfort in the fact that he was a Christian. So the moment he breathed his last here on this earth, he woke up in, e in eternity in heaven in the presence of God in glory. Isn't that awesome? That is the great hope of the Christian. And it's going to happen to every single one of us. When we breathe our last, where will we end up? In glory with the Lord Jesus Christ that only comes through His blessed gospel. That is the greatest mystery of all. And so Paul goes on explaining this mystery is not a new thing in terms of being conceived. It's actually predicted in the Old Testament. And that's verse 9. Look at it. Just as it is written in the Old Testament Scripture in Isaiah. Things which eye has not seen, this gospel truth uh, can't be found through human empiricism, through science. And then he goes on. An ear has not heard. That's through experience and human learning. And which have not entered the heart of man. That's rationalism or intuition. So every 
means known to humanity of how we accumulate knowledge would not work in coming to understand the truth of the mystery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It has to be revealed outside of ourselves by God on his initiative. That's what Paul is saying has happened. That is a mystery. God revealed this wonderful, blessed truth to us. All that God has prepared for those who love Him. He prepared this message for us. For those who love Him. For those who have believed in Him and His blessed, glorious Gospel. I want to close with this. Let's go ahead. If you've got your Bible, look at Matthew chapter 11. And we'll look at verse 25. Uh, as Jesus did His ministry and went around and preached and teached and did miracles, He had His critics. Most of the critics were religious people who thought they knew the Old Testament. And there were a lot of critics. There were just... Some who believed. He didn't focus on the critics. Oh, the horrible rejection I had. He focused on those who believed. Matthew eleven twenty five. he said, At that time Jesus said, I praise you, Father. I praise you, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things, spiritual truths, from the wise and intelligent of the world, and you have, get this, revealed them, see, to infants, to babes, those who had childlike faith. They heard the gospel and they, they believed. They were convicted and they believed. And God revealed it. God made it happen. God made the initiative. God opened their eyes. God opened their heart. And they were able to believe. So some will reject the message. Actually, many will reject the message. Some, a remnant probably, will be soft to it and believe. It's a great reminder for us. So that's the Pastoral ministry of the Apostle Paul, its method, its motive, and message, and all designed to give God the glory. And that should be our goal. Let's go ahead and pray and commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank You for our time together and time in the Word. Uh, great reminders of our humanity, our sinfulness, our fallenness, our neediness. Great reminders of Your glory, of Your amazing Gospel message that was authored by You revealed graciously by You and those who in childlike faith believe it are changed now and forever. That is a message the world mocks and just can't understand. But we do pray, Lord, that first of all, we thank You that for those of us who've, who have been saved, that You initiated salvation with us and, and we see and we know the truth and we're blessed by it. And we do pray for those that we that we know personally, friends or family or Colleagues at work who don't yet know you. They don't know the gospel. They haven't believed. There's a stumbling block. There's a lack of faith. There's satanic blindness. There's wanting to cling to their sin. Whatever the barrier is, God, keep working with your Holy Spirit to remove uh, impediments of belief. Soften their heart. Open their eyes that they might be saved and help us to be persevering in, in planting the seed, watering the seed, and praying for its fruition. We commit it all to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus 
other messages or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.